Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I'm your host, Chris Jones. When you think of the term American patriot, what comes to mind? George Washington? Perhaps even those who took part in the Boston Tea Party in 1773? Historical figures? Ask some avid Trump supporters today, though, and they might also say those who took part in the invasion of the Capitol building on January 6th, 2021, or almost certainly Trump himself. The definition is wildly varied, but is often linked with acts of violence and not necessarily just from the far right. A new study from Public Religion Research Institute suggests that more Americans say they would take up arms to save the nation from political corruption since two years ago. So how has what we define American patriotism changed over time? And how important could so-called patriots be in the build-up and the aftermath of the election? Well, joining me to discuss all of this is Sam Jackson, author of Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group, and Senior Fellow for Anti-Government Extremism at the Center on Terrorism, Extremism and Counterterrorism at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Sam, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. That's quite a title. Doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue easily, does it? (laughs) Takes a little practice. It does. Let's start quite broadly and simply here, although it's not a very simple answer, I think. How do you define a patriot in in America today? You know, that's a great question. And and like you say, it is really difficult and perhaps even more difficult than we could imagine, even if we spent a lot of time here trying to unpack the term. Rather than defining what a patriot is, I tend to look at who describes themselves as patriots and take that sort of approach. And if you take that sort of approach, you see that there's not necessarily a lot of agreement or a lot of similarity in terms of who does describe themselves as a patriot. And in fact, we see people who would describe themselves as patriots attacking their political opponents as not being patriots, while those people that they attack as not being patriots would love the same accusations at the other side, right? So the way that I think about patriotism is that it is a emotionally powerful term, It is a term that we use to describe people who we think are good actors, even if we don't have a really robust or rich or stable definition that we can use to sort of rigorously or analytically identify who is a patriot and who isn't. And patriotism kind of swings both ways, doesn't it? It's all over the place. You can't place it in one direction. It's both right and left. How does it differ when you think about the people on both sides that both describe themselves as patriots? So at the the simplest level, people who describe themselves as patriots are often trying to say that they love the country. You can imagine the most love it or leave it style love of country being described as patriotism. We might think of it as an exclusionary form of patriotism where there are clearly people who belong to that category. And supposedly there are clearly people who don't belong to that category. And the term is used more as a a cudgel or a political weapon. But we also have maybe on, on a more inclusive or perhaps even humble side of patriotism, we have people who say there are fundamental problems with the country. At heart, I still love the country while still recognizing these problems and seeking to make the country either live up to our hopes and aspirations, or maybe not even thinking about hopes and aspirations, maybe just thinking that we can constantly be improving the state of our politics, the state of our country. So I think we have 
examples of patriots who do both of these things, right? Who are staunchly defending what is or what was, as well as patriots who are pursuing some sort of future state. In your book, you dedicate a chunk of text to definitions, I guess, to try and explain to the reader what types or what groups of patriots exist. Do you think that what we think of as a patriot has warped over time throughout history up to, up to where we are now? I don't know if I would use the word warped. Right. It's certainly changed. You know, I think this is related to the fact that there's not a clear analytical definition necessarily, clear and, and thick analytical definition of patriotism. The fact that it's more a form of strategic communication, if you like, or persuasion means that it's probably easier for it to change over time. I also worry about romanticizing the past and thinking back to a past where maybe there was this more cohesive national community or national identity. I think the way that we get to that sort of rose-tinted glasses view of history is by forgetting who we've excluded from the political community in the past. So, you know, you might ask certain segments of the American population, when was America great? What is the time period that you want to return to? And maybe they say the 1950s or the 1960s or something like that. And then you might follow up with them and say, oh, so when Jim Crow was still in place, when Black people were systematically marginalized and and persecuted in different ways or when women were subjugated and didn't have as much autonomy, independence, or say in the political system, or when we didn't accept LGBTQ people, right? So if we want to try to imagine a past when there is a more cohesive set of patriots, I think the way we do that is often by defining the community in ways that exclude people who are no longer willing to be excluded. Let's talk about the specific groups a little bit more in detail. An example that you use in the book of, of patriotism is is linked to, to right-wing extremism, and that's something that you call the, the Patriot Militia Movement, of which there are a few groups that can be put into the category, such as Oath Keepers that you write about so much, but also perhaps the Proud Boys as well, which we've heard about so much here in, in the UK, linked to what happened in, in Jan 6th and, and all of that chaos, I guess, is the only real, real word for it. Could you tell me when this category of patriotism first cropped up and how it did. I think you said it's in the book that it's around about the 90s. So part of this is I'm going to have to put my real academic hat on for a second and and talk about concepts and definitions. So in my book, I, I specifically say that I choose a pretty clunky phrase to describe this movement. Other scholars have called it the militia movement or just militia groups. The groups themselves often prefer terms like we're the patriot movement or we're the liberty movement or the constitutionalist movement. So when I use this phrase patriot slash militia movement, I'm trying to sort of signal how these people are positioning themselves without just saying, and we should take their self-categorization uncritically. The Proud Boys is an interesting case because, you know, they've been around for however many years now, and I still haven't fully wrapped my head around how to categorize them. I often just sort of uh, end up saying they fetishize street violence and they've got a whole bunch of loathsome forms of bigotry within the ideas that they espouse. But 
That's a little bit different to me than a group like Oath Keepers that has a stable anti-government ideology at, at the heart of its movement, of its organization. Now, we could say that not everyone who's part of Oath Keepers holds to that anti-government ideology as, as tightly as the group's leadership might like. But I think that's quite different from a group like Proud Boys who they just want to go out in the street and fight people, especially people they think are bad. Let's talk about the Oath Keepers a little bit more in detail because they're perhaps a group that in the UK we've not heard a terrific amount about compared to the Proud Boys, for example. I think the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, has, has just been locked up for, for 18 years for his role in the Jan 6th riots. How do these groups work? How does the Oath Keepers specifically work? And, and how damaged will it be by seeing its leader put away behind bars for so long? Or will it? Yeah, I think it will. Oath Keepers is a little bit different than a lot of groups in this broader movement for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of groups like Oath Keepers tend to be relatively local and relatively small, whereas Oath Keepers is a national organization across their history. The group was founded in 2009. They've had a presence really across the country from Florida, New Hampshire, uh, California, Washington State, Texas, Illinois, Ohio, you know, you can go on and on listing states. And that is pretty different than a lot of other groups. At the same time, while there is this national leadership that was in many ways responsible for the branding and the public image of the group, the actions that the group and its members decided to be involved in, that was left more to the discretion of state chapters and local chapters to decide things like, how are we going to recruit? What sorts of promotional materials are we going to disseminate? What sorts of community events are we going to get involved in? That sort of thing. On the other hand, the national leadership worked really, really hard over the years to make the organization seem less extreme than it actually is. So the group would say things like, we're just pro-constitutionalists. We just want people to honor their oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. When they call us extremists, are they saying that the Constitution is extreme or something like that? So this is another place where the Oath Keepers differs from Proud Boys because Oath Keepers really wanted to seem like respectable political players, even as they were sort of keeping an arm's length away from institutional and electoral and partisan politics. So I, I think that has some implications for the future of the group. As you said, Stuart Rhodes, and I think we're up to something like 11 members of the organization, including Rhodes, have been convicted on seditious conspiracy charges, which is a really big deal. That's a pretty powerful political message to convict someone of seditious conspiracy. And he's facing, as you said, something like 18 years in prison, although I believe He's appealed saying he should have a lower sentence and the government has appealed saying he should have a higher sentence. So we'll see how much time he actually spends there. But he worked so hard to make the, his organization seem respectable that participating in the January 6th insurrection provoked some cognitive dissonance, perhaps for people who knew a little bit about the group and, and who believed this story about respectable and legitimate political actors as opposed to extremist groups. So since January 6th, we haven't really heard a lot from Oath Keepers. Most of what we've heard has been related to the trials of people who were arrested on various charges for participating. We've also seen some state and local chapters who have disavowed the national organization and 
have decided that they're going to be independent while still keeping that Oath Keeper's name. And I really do think that is at least partially because of that distance or that lack of consistency between the group's attempt at its public image and its participation in the insurrection. In a way, does the fact that Stuart Rose, for example, has been locked away now for for 18 years and there are 11 other members that are facing trial, does that really matter so much to their core membership? Because their messaging has always been, they're out to get us, the government is out to get us. So that really just feeds into their narrative. Do they weaponize that in a way to try and get extra members to, to recruit into their group? So I don't think Oath Keepers itself has done that this much, or at least not successfully. But again, coming back to that idea of, of the the group sort of tarnished its own brand by doing something that is so out of line with, with how it wanted to be perceived. But if we, we zoom out and we don't think about the Oath Keepers organization, but think about the broader movement that it's part of, yeah. that idea of martyrdom is really important. It is certainly something that, that various anti-government actors will say, look, January 6th, that thing that people are calling an insurrection, that was actually patriots going in and expressing their constitutional rights and also trying to preserve the republic. And the fact that they are locked up in prison, either in pretrial detention or having been convicted of crimes, that just indicates that the government is corrupt. It's another way that government is being tyrannical and is violating Americans' rights. I mean, back in before most of the trials had begun, but after some people had been detained on charges, the D.C. jail where they were housed had what started to be called the Patriot Wing, right, of people who I think they came together and said the Pledge of Allegiance every day while they were in incarcerated. And they might have sung the national anthem or, or something like that. You know, they did other sorts of things that did this this thing that you're getting at of trying to position themselves as still being patriots, despite being imprisoned for participating in an insurrection. What's the supportership like for for groups, not just Oath Keepers, but of other right-wing patriot militias, these types of movements? Are they more likely to have supporters from the the GOP or is is it quite varied perhaps? Oath Keepers in particular described itself as nonpartisan for, you know, a decade plus. And one of the things I, I say is, in a certain sense, they are nonpartisan, but only because they don't think that Republicans that many Republicans are sufficiently conservative or faithful to the founders' vision for the country, at least as they perceive that vision. Okay. What that means in consequence is if they're going to vote, they're probably voting for a Republican or for a third party candidate, maybe a Libertarian party candidate or something like that. But various people in Oath Keepers have sort of gone after establishment GOP politicians. Stuart Rhodes gained some notoriety a few years back when he said that John McCain should be tried, I think, for treason. He should be arrested on treason charges, tried by a jury of his peers and and hung by the neck until dead once he was convicted, sort of presuming the outcome there, right? Rhodes was so convinced that John McCain, this long-lasting central figure within the GOP, would be convicted of treason, which just sort of reveals things. I think 
if we zoom out, you would probably see a lot of people in groups like Oath Keepers who are not necessarily voting, who have given up on electoral politics, who say that maybe the only election where your vote actually matters is at the county level. So it's really important to go out and vote for your sheriff, for example, to make sure you have a so-called constitutional sheriff. I think it's pretty uncommon to see people who would support Democrats or anyone left of center deciding to be active in these types of groups. We've talked about definitions and and, and the past. Um, I want to look more towards the present and the future as well now. I mentioned that PRRI study in the intro that suggested that perhaps more Americans are becoming more willing to take up arms in order to save the nation from political corruption. That's up from two years ago, which I think was 15%, has now moved to around about 23%. And that was a study that picked around about 1,000 people to answer those questions. What do you take from that study? And do you fear the results from that study, perhaps, when you consider what happened in 2021? I think it's important to realize what we can learn from surveys and what we can't learn from surveys. So this is providing a really good baseline about um, ideas of support for political violence among Americans. And I've got the, the question pulled up right here. The survey asked, because things have gotten so far off track, True American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. Yeah. And respondents were asked to, to express their level of agreement with that statement. And one of the things that I don't think we can learn from this survey is what are those things have gotten so far off track? What is the problem that people are perceiving that might lead them to express support for violence? I think our first read of this might be to to think of it as political corruption, especially in a partisan or an institutional sense. But I think it's also possible that some people who may have expressed support for political violence could be people who are saying fascism has come to America. And it might be that the only way to defeat that fascism is with political violence. So I think it's important to recognize that that there's not a simple interpretation of these things, right? Like one of the types of survey questions that often gets asked is about satisfaction with the direction the country is going in. Yeah. Well, what does it mean if you say you're not satisfied? It could mean you think that the things that the current presidential administration is trying to accomplish are bad and the administration shouldn't be trying to accomplish those things. Or it could also mean you support the administration's efforts and you're upset that those efforts aren't succeeding more. So if you you sort of take that context, I think it becomes a little bit harder to anticipate the implications of this increase in support for political violence, at least in the abstract, and, and makes it harder to know what might happen after the 2024 election. That said, I don't see any reason to think that another January 6th insurrection couldn't happen. We already see people from Donald Trump to others who are preemptively attacking the legitimacy of that election. And this is exactly what they did before the 2020 election that then was sort of the, the first event or maybe an early event in a series of events that led to the insurrection. I don't see any reason that we should be confident that that won't happen again. Do you also think that perhaps groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys, will look at surveys that have been conducted like this, no matter how big or small they are, 
and try and push that message and kind of say, look, this is what these guys are doing. Come and join us. This is the Patriot movement. And that's another way that they can try and recruit large members of Americans to a cause that they believe in, which I think you write in your book, Oath Keepers, for example, are largely propelled by conspiracy theories. So like the New World Order, for example. Do you think that these kind of groups will use these surveys to create messaging to help recruit more people, for example? So one of the other general patterns that we see with people like those who are part of Oath Keepers or or even Proud Boys is a distrust of traditional sources of knowledge and instead trusting so-called alternative media. So things like Infowars or Breitbart or Gateway Pundit, um, these places that are not reputable or authoritative purveyors of information by any means. So... On the one hand, it might be that the only contact they have with a survey like this is if it gets filtered through those alternative, quote unquote, alternative media outlets. At the same time, there are certain actors within this movement and especially affiliated with some of those alternative media outlets who are quite fond of cherry picking data and crafting narratives around really reductive interpretations of results. So, you know, if they see a survey that says that 40 or 50 or 60 percent of Americans are not happy with the way that things are going, they're going to spin that into a narrative of 40 to 60 percent of Americans don't support Joe Biden, the current president, and want to see a change. And therefore, those people will support the GOP nominee or just Trump. Right. So I think it's possible that they will hear a a distorted interpretation of them. You know, it's possible that they might try to deploy it in propaganda or recruitment materials, but I don't think that's likely to be very effective for them or a particularly common strategy. I think they have other strategies that are more in their wheelhouse and are more effective for their audiences. And just finally, Sam, how big a role do you think patriotism, especially in the context that we've been talking about in terms of the Earth Keepers and the Proud Boys, that far right militia movement, as, as you call it, how big a part do you think they will have to play in the build-up to the election? And then if the Democrats do retake, will that serve only to help them grow even more? I think you write in your book that if the Democrats were to retake political power, the Oath Keepers are likely to have more grievances to talk about that will resonate with a larger audience. So if Joe Biden were to be re-elected, do you think that the likes of the Oath Keepers, for example, will only continue to grow? Absolutely. And this is another place where I really want to draw our attention a little bit away from specific groups like Oath Keepers and instead think more about the broader movement that these groups are part of. So Oath Keepers at its height never claimed more than 45,000 dues paying members. We've seen some leaked membership lists over the past couple of years that typically have somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 45,000 names on them. But critically, those are lists of people who have ever been a member of Oath Keepers, not a snapshot of the current membership at any one time. And watchdog organizations have often said less than 5,000 active dues paying members at any particular moment. So maybe 5,000, maybe even 30,000, if we want to give the group the benefit of the doubt and say that its membership numbers are accurate. Before the group was deplatformed from Facebook, they had more than 100,000 likes and followers on some of their big group pages. 
And importantly, the narratives that Oath Keepers put forward, these are common narratives among the broader movement. They're not specific to the organization. So all this to say, these groups continue to express grievances. They continue to say that the 2020 election was illegitimate and that Joe Biden only won because of voter fraud or or corruption or other sorts of things. And I see no reason to think that that would go away, especially when you have the leading GOP primary uh, candidates continuing to promote those ideas, continuing to attack the legitimacy of electoral systems. You know, it's interesting to think about what has happened to the Oath Keepers since 2020, because I think maybe their grievances got so intense and turned into a, a little fireball in all of their chests that they decided to participate in the insurrection. And maybe that means that the group burned out early. But those grievances are certainly still going to be there. The pessimist in me sees little reason to think that they won't be present again. Yeah, it's it's all very scary. And the chaos in American politics just seems never ending, doesn't it? Sam, thanks so much for joining me in the bunker. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and want more like this, Why Not Back is on Patreon for just £3 a month. You'll get access to all of our episodes before anyone else, and there's some pretty sweet merch available for you to get your hands on too. Most of all, though, you'll be helping to keep important conversations like this going. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. Bunker USA was written and presented by Chris Jones. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.